Welcome to the Ideas Have Consequences podcast YouTube live event. This is our first YouTube live event, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to hearing your questions and um, engaging with you uh, today. So we'll just see how it goes. Again, it's the first time I've ever done this. I have done a million Q&As, but I've never done one on YouTube. So this should be a lot of fun. We got some guys off camera over here who are going to be asking the questions that you're sending in. So you want to fire away at me over there, guys? Absolutely. The first question uh, was, why did you start the podcast? Can, can you hear them? Is that coming through over there? So the first question, why did I choose to start this podcast? You know, it's interesting. For years, I've been doing interviews, uh, television, radio, um, podcasts, uh, you name it, for, gosh, I don't know, 20, 25 years. And I have been, throughout that time, I've been encouraged to start my own show. And we kind of played with that idea a little bit. We did a radio show for a little bit. We, we had prior to this podcast, which is new, it's been around for about a month, the Ideas Have Consequences podcast. We had, we had a little, little um, one that was going for, uh, for a bit, <clears throat> but I decided to do it because first of all, I enjoy gauging with people. I enjoy gauging, engaging on the ideas. And um, I think it's just a format that's very useful in, I'm a professional writer, but it's a format that's useful in reaching yet another audience that you might otherwise not reach with a published article. And increasingly, obviously, podcasts are, um, I think the average American, I heard this stat, maybe it's inaccurate, but listens to something like 10 hours of podcasts a week. Uh, is that accurate? Something like that. Yeah. 10, 11 hours of podcasts a week. So it seemed to me that I was missing a big portion of a potential audience if I didn't have a podcast. Other questions, guys? Yeah. The next question is, uh, yeah, let me just pull it up for a second. Have you got the full screen up this way? Late on me, yes, guys. Okay, so this is a question about the books on your desk here. Um, I have a question about the book Suicide of the West. I see on your desk. There seems to be several books with this title. Can you please let me know the author and also maybe just a little bit about the book itself? Yeah, hopefully uh, you can see this uh, here Suicide of the West. Uh, who are the authors? Richard Koch. K-O-C-H and Chris Smith are the authors of this book. I was consulting this book because I was curious. This was a book that I picked up in a, uh, in a library sale. And I thought, hmm, this looks, this looks intriguing to me. And uh, I was just intrigued by it and uh, decided to read it, what their thesis is. Um, gosh, when was this book published? This was, book was published in... Not recently. This is probably 20 years ago. Yes, uh, 2006 when they published it. But obviously, you know, people, people a couple of decade, decades ago were already seeing the problems that we talk about on a podcast like this. And that is the decline of the West. What is happening? That's the, that's the thesis of Neil Ferguson's book, the Oxford-educated uh, Harvard historian, uh, his book, Civilization, the West and the Rest, where he's talking about the decline of Western civilization and the rise of the East and what's happening. He attributes it in a large part to the decline of Christianity. And as far as I know, I think Ferguson is an atheist. I'm, I'm not positive about that, but I, but I think he is. He's, he's married to, I believe, Ian Hersey Alley, who is also an atheist, but somebody I admire, a, uh, a former Muslim who 
you know, who fled uh, an Islamic country and who herself lives under some measure of threat. But anyway, this is, this is kind of the secular version of the suicide of the West. What's, what's going on? Is it a great book? I wouldn't say it's a great book, but I would say that it's an insightful book and it's helpful. Other questions? So next question here is sort of your classic desert island question, which is if you were stranded on an island, what three <laughs> books would you like to have with you? Three books. Three, only get three. Three books. Well, I will assume that, you know, I'm allowed to have the Bible. You know, if I'm on a desert island, am I not allowed to take my phone nope. that has about 1,500 books on it? They ran out of battery. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's depressing. Well, um, Wow. I would take long ones that could occupy me for a very long time. Um, I will, assuming that the Bible is one that I'm allowed to have, and I don't just say that just to, you know, just to try to score, you know, points or virtue signal. I, it to me is life. I would, I would need substance to get me through. Uh, what would obviously be a very lonely time. And uh, it's also a very long book, but it contains history. It contains literature. It, it, it contains uh, uh, poetry. It, uh, it contains uh, so much in it. So there would be that. I would undoubtedly take <clears throat> something by Dostoevsky, uh, which I'm not sure. Uh, probably something of his that I haven't read, which would narrow, <laughs> narrow the gap just a little bit, probably Tolstoy. I'd probably take something like Anna Karenina or War and Peace or something that can really occupy your mind. War and Peace, by the way, 1,500 pages. My students loved me when I signed <laughs> that book to them. Um, yeah, so those are a couple of books. I need more time to think about that as to what exactly would I take. Uh, you know, Speaking practically, what I should take is something like a Boy Scout manual. <laughs> you know, something about how to start fires and how to feed yourself on a desert island you know, or something, something like that. But I don't know. Those are just my immediate reactions when I hear that. Good question. Okay, the next question is about pacifism. You're often encouraging your audience to... I'm not a pacifist. The opposite. <laughs> <laughs> But what would you say to someone who says, you know, we should just pray. There's a lot of bad things going on. We can't change it. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we obviously just be completely passive about engaging the world. Yeah, well, I hate that. I hate that kind of thinking. It's not Christian thinking. Um, go ye into all the world is what, what the Lord told us. Um, sell and go buy a sword. I mean, this is, these are the words of our Lord. Now, a lot of people who adopt that kind of thinking, and I should say this for full context, um, you, can, you can dismiss this if you like. You must understand that I was born and raised in a military family. My life, my home life was dominated by the military, even after my dad retired. It was still dominated by the, uh, by the military because, you know, all of the, the benefits you know, came from the military bases. So we had to live near a military base. So I had an ID card. I was on the military base all the time. It's where I got my haircuts. It's where I went for my doctor's appointments. It's where my parents went to the PX and to the commissary and so on. I was born at Fort Benning, Georgia. So I was raised in a context of men who believed that there were things that were worth fighting for and dying for. And so has that penetrated me? Absolutely. Do I believe that in my core? I do. 
But the thing that annoys me about pacifists is that pacifists enjoy, they enjoy the benefits, the freedom that was purchased with the blood of other people. Uh, this isn't quoting scripture, and I'll come around to the, to the Christian answer in just a moment, but Pericles, the 5th century BC Athenian statesman, in the funeral, funeral oration, which is contained in the, uh, the history of the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides, arguably the, the greatest historian of all time, Pericles says this as he's giving his speech over the Athenian dead. He says, happiness depends on freedom, and freedom depends on courage. A quotation that is often wrongly attributed to Orwell, but I'm sure he wishes that he had said it, was this is it's wonderful whoever came up with it um men and women speak speak uh, excuse me men and women sleep peaceably in bed at night because rough men stand ready to do violence on their behalf so i grew up in the company of rough men rough men who believed that there was a place to fight and there was a place, if need be, to actually die. I believe those principles are contained in Scripture, not for just anything. What you see is that Jesus actually didn't do much to defend himself. He did defend his message, but he absolutely defended his disciples. He absolutely defended other people, and he did it with rhetoric in the public square and in the public space. Uh, many of the great preachers of the Christian faith did the same. Go and look at those of the Reformation um, who modeled these things for us. So I do think that there are things worth fighting and dying for. And I'll add to this. Our God doesn't say that he comes back meek and mild. He comes back at the head of a heavenly host. And he comes back to put an end to war. But he does it through war. I mean... It is, it, we are told there was war in heaven. I mean, clearly our God believed there were things that were worth fighting for. Certainly in the Old Testament, he ordained wars on occasion. I don't think, by the way, that Ukraine is a God-ordained war. <laughs> that I don't believe. But if you're one of those Christians who, who just thinks, hey, I'll just sit this one out. It's the more Christian thing to do. What you're telling me is, is that you don't want to do anything. That's what you're telling me. You're telling me that either A, you're a moral coward, or B, you're just cloaking your cowardice or your apathy in Christianese. But it's not Christian. Next question. So we got a question there on, on pacifism. The second one is almost from the other side of the spectrum, I think, if I'm reading correctly, from Kelly Shoemaker. And she asks, Hello, Kelly. What is an objective biblical method of determining whether a legitimate authority has become tyrannical or not? That's Romans 13, isn't it? Uh, in part... Uh, we see there that the Apostle Paul, who was living under an oppressive Roman regime, he says that the state does not bear the sword for nothing. On the other hand, we also see that there is a place for men and women to defy the state. And I think that for me, and I'm speaking for myself, that place comes when the state is telling me to do that which is contrary to what I know to be right from a, from a biblical point of view. So take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for instance. They're told to bend the knee and worship a false god, and they refuse to do it. No matter what the consequences, they refused to do it. 
And God was with them in doing that. So our God wouldn't have you violate his law in order to be obedient to the state. We believe as Christians that God's law is above that of any state. And I'll quote Francis Schaeffer here. Francis Schaeffer in a terrific little book called How Then Should We Live, uh, published, I don't know, maybe like 83 or so. But in that book, he says this, this is a loose quotation, but I've always remembered it when I read that book when I was 15. Um, he, uh, he says this, Christians are by nature rebels. And that is because no totalitarian or authoritarian regime can tolerate a people who say that they have an absolute universal standard by which all men in their governments are judged. So we as Christians, we as Christians judge the existing state, the regime, whether it's local government or it's the Biden administration, we judge it, we evaluate it by holding it against God's law. And I will say this, the men who started the American Revolution, they started it for a lot less than we're tolerating in this country right now. But you have to let your own Christian conscience decide that, but not just decide it willy-nilly. You're deciding it by comparing what you know, you're thinking. Is your thinking informed by what the Bible itself says, not just what your heart tells you? That's, that's, that's the worst kind of advice. That's Jeremiah 17:9. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. If all you do is just follow your own whims, you're, you're all sail, no anchor. Next question. Yeah, Larry, the next question is, Larry, what's your take on why the modern church fails in dealing with this decline by not standing against it and do you as a Christian think this demise has a spiritual connection? That's a great question. And it is the next podcast, I think, is where's the church? Uh, we just recorded one on Bill Gates here just a, just a few minutes ago, which you'll see, uh, I don't know, this later this week or next week. The next podcast is going to be on where is the church? Where is the church? Well, we are told that in the last days that there will be false teachers and that even the elect might be led astray. And that is to say, even good Christians might be led astray. But we're also informed that there are many people, you know, who take on the form of Christianity but aren't themselves actually Christians. They just, they, they've never had regeneration of heart and soul. Um, so I think there are several reasons for this, what we're seeing from the church. One is that I think that many churches what we call woke churches, they're those that are ad adopting woke ideology because they believe they'll be left alone. Now, if you saw in a previous podcast where I talk about something called the British Fighting Square, and I was talking about uh, Mark 12:30, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, which is to say your body. And I made reference to the four sides of that square. Go and watch that in the podcast on, you know, what happened at the Biden White House. That podcast now has almost 600,000 YouTube views, and in it, I lay out the broken square as an analogy of explaining this. But you see, there are those who have decided not to engage on the mind. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they've retreated from that side of the square not engaged on the intellectual elements, don't want to really know what's going on with Marxism and intersectionality and critical race theory and, 
and uh, white supremacy and all this kind of stuff. They've just completely punted on that because they're hoping to be left alone. You know, hey, if we're just involved in do-gooder stuff, we put a sign out front that says God loves everybody. We have a soup kitchen. We'll be left alone. You won't be left alone. You won't be left alone. You will be forced to bend the knee and to worship the modern secular gods. You will be, but I think there are many churches that are doing it for that reason. There are also those who do it because they believe that it's, uh, it's expedient. I've met many conservative, Bible-believing Christian pastors who really, you can tell, they do not want to engage on the kind of issues that we're discussing on this podcast. They're frightened of them. They're frightened of them. They're afraid of what their own congregations will say. They're afraid that maybe, maybe half the people won't show up next week. My feeling about that is, so be it. Speak the truth and let the chips fall where they may. Economically, in terms of numbers. And I will, I will also add this, that being numbers-driven, the marketing strategy of churches has been deadly to churches. Because what you end up doing is you become Rick Warren. If you've been following, have you been following any stuff with Rick Warren? This guy is all about seeker sensitivity. He is all about results orientation. When I hear defenses of Rick Warren, they always begin with this. He's done so much for the kingdom. You know what comes to my mind when I hear that? There will be many on that day who will say, Lord, Lord, did I not do X in your name? And that is to say, in judgment, there will be those people who say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't condemn me. You can't say, depart into outer darkness because look at what I did. Look at all the good stuff I did. That is not the way our Lord will judge us. He judges us according to our obedience. If you go by that standard, Isaiah is in hell. <laughs> I mean, Isaiah didn't see really any converts, did he? He said, be obedient. Don't worry about the numbers. But when you are, when you are really numbers-driven, you start adapting your message in such a way as to be seeker-sensitive. You become like a business. Sometimes when businessmen get involved, get on boards of nonprofits, they get involved in boards on, on ministries, they can't help but bring the business mentality and say, hey, let's lop off this element of our ministry because it's not productive. That's not the way ministry is supposed to work. It's not turning a profit, in other words. So there are a lot of different agendas, a lot of different things going on here. And I'll also add to this that... Um, that you also are looking at individuals who are wolves in sheep's clothing in many instances. They're individuals who, they're not Christian. They ha are hijacking the Christian message for their purpose. It's, it's interesting. I was in Rome recently, and I uh, had a very interesting, long conversation with a Catholic priest. Who, and I said, hey, explain to me what's going on with the, uh, with the whole um, you know, sex abuse scandal thing. And he said that their internal, that is to say the Vatican, that the, the church's internal research had indicated that the church had been infiltrated by pedophiles who saw the priesthood as a way to stay single with respect. People would say, it's very odd. You know, he's 40 and he's still not married. <laughs> he said, well, but he's a priest. And then secondly, to gain access to children. These weren't individuals who are, 
who were fervent in their faith in God and wanted to serve humanity. These were individuals who saw it as a vehicle to prey on people. Ministry always attracts the best and worst of men. It always has. And it's because there are those people who see it as an opportunity to prey on individuals. And Jesus warned about this. He said this would be the case. you got to watch out for those people. Next question. So there are a bunch of questions here about the World Economic Forum, and this question here seems to be, I think, um, asking question that a lot of people are feeling here. And from Kate Anderson, it is: Do you believe we can hold the World Economic Forum, bring the World Economic Forum to justice, and hold them accountable for what they've done? Do we have the power to change things for the better? It seems like an impossible task. I'm sorry, her name is Kate. Kate Anderson. Kate Anderson, thank you so much for your question. Yes, I do, but I believe that. Um, I don't want to preach on this Q&A, but I believe we have to bring God into it. There are a lot of people, a lot of Christians who think they do God a favor by not bringing him into the conversation. Um, we have to bring all heavy artillery to bear, and there's none heavier than the Lord himself. We need him to intervene on our behalf. And we need people like you, Kate, and me, and the people sitting in the studio and other people who are watching and listening to engage. And to engage, by the way, with confidence not with fear, but with confidence. I, I believe that what we're talking about on this show is the default rational point of view. By that, I don't mean that I'm always right in everything I say on here, but to the extent that it aligns with Scripture, and hopefully most of it does, I believe it's, it's, it's the right view. Depopulation of the earth is evil. We must combat it. And that means, Kate, we need people like you to engage with local school boards, with your, your public officials. Hold them accountable. Let them hear you. Let them hear your voice. Be like the, uh, as we just mentioned in the podcast we just recorded, be like the uh, persistent widow in that parable. You just keep going again and again and again to your officials and demanding justice. That needs to happen. Right now, we have so many elected officials in this country who do not feel accountable to their constituents. You need to make yourself a pest to them all and say, I will not tolerate this with school boards, with, with state officials, with your representatives, with all of them. So yes, I do believe we can win, Kate, and I do believe that because I believe, as I keep saying, that this situation of the tail wagging the dog we have right now um, the, the globalist, elitist, the, the leftist, they have put the bit in the mouth of the horse of the global population to lead it wherever they want. That has to change. Larry, the next question is, will you ever have a guest on your show? Yes, I will have a guest on my show. This isn't a guest-driven show, but... I will definitely have guests on this show. And actually, we've been talking about that quite a lot uh, as to who those guests might be. But I'm excited about some of those that we're discussing and what that's going to look like and how we go about doing that. Next questions. Uh, Ani, one of the questions here I think is kind of interesting. As a public figure, how do you react to um, a lot of the, obviously, the criticism that comes with that on you know, Twitter, people coming after you? How do you, how do you handle that? How do I handle criticism, the trolls, the things that people say? You know, you often hear, I listen to a lot of sports radio. I don't listen to podcasts, actually. I, I, uh, I listen to a lot of sports radio. And what you often hear coaches and players say 
is they don't pay attention to it. None of it ever bothers them. I, I don't think they're telling the truth. Uh, they may not pay attention to it. They may not seek it out, but you wouldn't be able to help but hear some of that. Listen, I've been trashed by the Atlantic three times, the Guardian three times, the Independent in Britain three times, the New Yorker, um, you know, you name it. I've been trashed a ton. And often, not always, but often unfairly, like a deliberate smear. Does that bother me? Of course it does. Um, bothers my family. It bothers my wife um, when that happens, and in part because you want the opportunity to have your say. That said, um, I enter into this arena knowing that that's part of it and always reminding myself still how much easier my task is. I have friends around the world who live in third world countries who are Christians who live under physical threat all the time. And uh, when I was invited to go on Al Jazeera years ago to debate a Muslim cleric and atheist, Dan Dennett, it's the weird debate, but uh, to debate on, uh, on their platform, across all their platforms, 270 million people watching globally, I got a call from a very prominent Christian figure who said, Larry, don't do it. I heard that you're going to do this. Don't do it. You'll receive tons of death threats. And I thought, how can I look my third world Christian friends in the eye who proclaim their faith unswervingly under the constant threat of Muslim militants who have killed members of their family, who have killed members of their churches, their friends? And I say, but I couldn't say anything because they were going to criticize me. They're going to send me a death threat. No, I think that that's part of the problem that's happened in the Western world is I think that men in particular have fallen silent because they're afraid. They're afraid to be marked off the party list. They're afraid not to get a promotion, afraid not to get that scholarship they've applied for, afraid to be shunned, afraid people will go on social media and call them mean things. You just can't worry about that. You just got to keep going forward. I, I, I also like to think in this kind of way that I am performing uh, to use a bit of a crass term, for an audience of one. At the end of the day, the only opinion of Larry Taunton that matters is what my Lord thinks of Larry Taunton. It isn't what the Atlantic thinks of Larry Taunton. It isn't even what my friends or family think of Larry Taunton. It's what does the Lord think of Larry Taunton. So that matters to me. And the words that ring out in my, my ears, in my mind constantly, is if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. If that doesn't frighten you, it should. Next question. Question here from Katerina, which is basically there's... Katerina, she sounds on. Russian. Um, what three things do you think a Christian should educate themselves on right now? Great question, Katerina. And Katerina, if you're not Russian, if you're not Ukrainian, if you're not from Eastern Europe, your name definitely came from there. I love that name. It's a beautiful name. Um, three things that Christians should educate themselves on. It will sound trite, but you need to know your Bibles. You know, I am, I am now, even at this stage of my life, going, oh, wow, I, I really need to catch up for a lost time in studying and knowing Scripture because it will arm me, it will equip me to take on these issues. The second thing is, is I would tell you that you need to understand Marxism and you need to understand Marxist tactics. What you learn about Marxism 80% of it applies to fascism. We're also seeing fascism 
uh, in the Western world too, but, but what you learn about Marxism will arm you there. And I'll give you a simple, easy way to do it. That is to say an enjoyable way to do it. Read almost anything post-1849 by Dostoevsky. 1849 was his, uh, was his conversion to the Christian faith, and he dedicated his life to the demolition of socialism. Read, it's a book that I've had here on this table for a little while sitting over there. It's uh, Dostoevsky's Demons, also translated as The Possessed, The Brothers Karamazov, Crime and Punishment. Uh, those books are superb in arming you. Even though they're you know, 140, 150 years old, those books, Dostoevsky understood the issues that we're facing. He did. A, a guy I'm going to mention on an upcoming show, Lev Kapolev, Lev Kopelev, K-O-P-E-L-E-V, uh, Education of a True Believer, superb book. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, these guys got it. You can go read the, the um, Senate testimony, the little books that were written by Richard Warmbrand, who is a, um, a Romanian pastor, wrote a book called uh, Tortured for Christ. Those books will help you understand the modern landscape. I've read them all, and I still find myself going back every week and consulting them. They're useful to consult. So you need to, you need, reading the Bible will help you to fortify your mind and your heart. Reading these other books will help you understand. They'll give you understanding. What was it? Three things that what they need to be doing? Educating themselves. Educating, educating themselves on. And uh, I would also probably, you know, add to that, that as you're reading those things, have some discernment about the way you're understanding the headlines, what's happening in the headlines, the ways in which you might be deceived with headlines. Not all of them are, are deceptive. Not all of them are not untrue. But unfortunately, now more than ever in the West, we are seeing how media has been hijacked. So engaging those, but engaging them with a clear mind, with a clear heart, and with a lens to help you understand what's happening there. Next question. Yeah, Larry, a lot of questions about um, Muslims, and one of the questions was, why do you think so many Muslims like your show? Uh, and you referred to before about um, engaging with Muslims, so I'd yeah. love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, first of all, I love engaging Muslims. And not the, not the <laughs> years ago, I got a call from CNN International that said, would you be willing to come on CNN International, which is based in London, and I debate a Muslim about free speech. And I was like, yes. I turned to my staff and I was like, yes, I can't wait for this. And it's because if it had been CNN in Atlanta, I would have gone, eh, eh, who knows what they'll give me at CNN in Atlanta. But CNN London, that's where a lot of the radicals in the Western world are, is in London. So I thought they're going to get me a real Muslim. I mean, a real honest to goodness Muslim who believes that he should model his life after Muhammad. Every Muslim is supposed to believe that, supposed to do that, who knows the Quran, who's read the Hadith and seeks to follow it. Those people that we call, those Muslims that we call radicals, they are not radicals. They are Orthodox Muslims. The fuzzy Western types, they're just like Methodists. I mean, they're just, they, don't take, they don't take the Quran or the Hadith any more seriously to, than, uh, than, than Episcopalians take, or uh, Methodists take the Bible. And I'm having just a little bit of fun with you. I have a lot of friends. I was a Methodist at one point in my life, so I can make fun of Methodists. And guess what? I go on CNN International, and do you know who they put me on with? A woman, really a girl, 
from North Carolina who is a hippie former Baptist convert to Islam who didn't understand anything about her adopted faith. So I really have enjoyed, and uh, I've done this with my friend Jay Smith at Hyde Park, Speaker's Corner at Hyde Park, Sunday afternoons, if you're ever in London, go to Hyde Park and Speaker's Corner on a Sunday afternoon and watch as all the Muslims and other people gather there to debate issues, to debate topics. The real MI5, by the way, <laughs> moves among those crowds, and they do, and it's, there's a reason for that because a lot of the so-called radicals, they gather there, and I've debated with them, you know, where you stand up on a platform and you go at it. But I said that I love them. Why do I love them? Because they believe something. They believe something. They actually, they actually believe in absolute truth. And for me, that makes them easier to engage because we both begin with a premise. There is an absolute right and wrong. Try, try debating a secularist on something like that. It's like trying to nail jello to a wall. They just, they just blow with the wind. They don't ultimately have a core that's rooted in anything, at least not rationally speaking. Muslims do because they believe in God. Jay will tell me that aforementioned Jay Smith, who has ministered his whole career to, again, the so-called radicals, he would say, Larry, one of my converts is worth 10 of yours in the United States because when Muslims, radical Muslims, convert to the Christian faith, he says they are prepared to die for that faith. Their, their, their conversion is Pauline in nature, meaning they're going this direction and they go 180 degrees in the other direction direction. They're prepared to die for it. And I love that about Muslims. I do love that about Muslims. I hope you'll keep watching and listening to this show, even if you're not, not fully on board with my Christian point of view. So I'm glad to have them along. And, and I'm going to ask myself a question or answer a question that seems to come up in the, the questions every now and then is there are those who like to come on the comments that say, Larry hates homosexuals. Larry hates homosexuals. I don't hate homosexuals. I hate pedophiles. And what we're seeing in the culture right now are individuals. There is a, a militant arm of the LGBTQ um, mafia, and Muslims are with me on this. <laughs> we, we are absolutely in agreement on this. These are people without any moral core whatsoever and who are targeting kids. You better believe I want to come after people like you. You are evil, but that doesn't define every homosexual. There are, as I see it, two, two groups of homosexuals or within the LGBT community. And there are those who are in the closet whose consciences are still at work and who feel shame for their lifestyle. For individuals like that, I feel compassion. I feel compassion. Years ago, years ago, a... Um, a young man came up to me. I was speaking at Bowdoin College in Maine. And during the Q&A, a young man came up to me, and it was, it was almost classic. I have a friend, <laughs> was the way he framed the question. But it was clearly, it was clear it was him. And he was talking about same-sex attraction, that he was struggling with homosexuality. And he asked me, do I have to, in order to become a Christian, will Jesus accept me? Do I have to become a heterosexual before I become a Christian? And I said, no. 
And he started at that, nearly choked on his bottle of water. And I said, no. He said, you mean Jesus would accept me now? And I said, look, this is something I heard somebody say years ago. It's not original with me, but I asked this question. Do you take a bath before you take a bath? And he looked at me kind of funny. I said, no, it's a serious question. It's not a trick question. Do you take a bath before you take a bath? He said, well, of course not. I said, well, you don't take a bath before you come to Jesus. You come to Jesus to get clean. You don't make yourself clean to make yourself acceptable to him. There's no hope of that. We're all fallen. We're all sinful. You come to Jesus to get clean. Now, you do have to repent of your sin, and homosexuality is a sin. I always tell myself, and this might be useful to some of you who are out there, when someone confesses to you a sin with which you cannot relate, you think to yourself, well, I don't understand. I would never do that. I've done this for myself. I always feel the Holy Spirit prompting me and saying, Larry, think of the sins that you struggle with. And I go, ah, <laughs> it's like that for him. It's like that for him. He's struggling with this. If you are struggling with this sin, that tells me that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. I struggle with my sin all the time. My sin isn't to struggle with homosexuality, but boy, I sure struggle with, with other sins. And I always ask for the help of the Holy Spirit in dealing with my own sin. So no, I don't hate homosexuals. I don't hate the LGBTQ community. Indeed, I want to see them. I care about you enough to tell you the truth. And I want to see you come to Jesus Christ. I want you to see, I want you to have eternal life. I want you to have hope. I want you to have salvation. I want you to find the real meaning and purpose in your life. So those of you who would say, that I hate homosexuals, it's not true. I hate the, LG, the, the militant LGBTQ alphabet mafia group that is trying to force their agenda upon the rest of us. And you better believe I hate what you people represent. But for the closet homosexual or lesbian or what have you, whatever your sin, whatever it is, who is out there struggling with your sin, I feel nothing but compassion for you. And you need, you need to find those Christians who take their faith, who understand their faith well enough to understand that our God is a God of grace. But if you reject the grace he freely offers, he's a God of, he's a God of justice and judgment to you. And you need to be warned of that because hell is real. Next question. So we have a bunch of questions here relating to evolution. So what, what's your opinion on evolution? <laughs> <laughs> In 50 words or less with pictures. Um, you know, it's really interesting. We, we engaged on the issue of um, creation, of um, origins. I guess first in 2006, we did a debate at Sanford University. We've never put it online, and that was at the request of one of the participants who was arguing against Professor John Lennox, Oxford University Professor John Lennox, professor of mathematics and um, pure mathematics and philosophy of science at Oxford University, has PhDs from Oxford, Cambridge, and the University of Wales. John is the modern-day C.S. Lewis. And if you look on our website, you will find debates on these topics. You will see them 
down below, excuse me, not on the website, on our YouTube channel. They're all on the YouTube channel. Make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel. And subscribe on Twitter as well, by the way, in case, you know, who, who knows <laughs> these days how long you remain on any platform. So make sure you subscribe on, on several. We post the podcast on both, on Twitter now as Elon Musk is changing that platform and also on YouTube, but you'll find these debates on there. And I point you to them because John Lennox is a scientist and uh, he's a Christian and he's a serious Christian. He takes scripture very, very seriously. And he will argue this much more um, ably than, than I can do. But I would say to you, I believe in evolution. And you go, oh, what? Well, let's give definition to what we mean by evolution. Evolution has many distinct meanings. It could just mean slow change. I, do I believe in the Darwinian, atheistic, natural explanation that there was absolutely nothing and then poof, there was something? Of course not. Do I believe in intra-species evolution? I do not. But do I believe in, I mean, at some level, we see, we can see um, micro-evolution. We can, we can actually track that. We can actually see that. But I don't accept the Darwinian you know, explanation, not at all. I'm not a theistic evolutionist. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not one of those people who says, I believe the Bible, but then I, you know, I attack some kind of Darwinian explanation on the end of that. I don't. But if you really want to understand you know, my own viewpoint, I would say go and watch uh, uh, Lennox in debate with, um, say, Richard Dawkins on these types of issues. You know, it's interesting because for centuries, scientists accepted the Aristotelian model, which is to say that matter was eternal. The universe had always been and would always be. That matter itself was eternal until the 1960s when they discovered the microwave background, the Big Bang echo, so to speak, the idea that there was an absolute beginning. And you know, the as Lennox himself points out, the response of atheistic scientists at the time was to say, we can't let this idea get out there because it will arm the Christians. They'll say, aha, there was a beginning. There was a point where God said, let there be light. But listen, there are many great men of science and of faith who accepted the biblical version of that. But again, uh, we were, we're also going to put out on this on the, our YouTube channel, we're going to put out a lecture, a two-part lecture that Lennox gave discussing Genesis 1 and 2 in the light of science or discussing science in the light of Genesis 1 and 2, however you want to put it, and it'll absolutely blow your head off. It is superb, and, uh, and I think you'll enjoy that. Next question. Yeah, Larry, a lot of questions around uh, do you believe in the belief of total depravity, uh, Calvinism or Arminianism? And then five point tulip <laughs> or not? So, you know, <laughs> Armenians are just a persecuted ethnic group. <laughs> Those poor people—they're just persecuted all over the planet. No, um, I am not an Armenian. Uh, am I a Calvinist? You know, Calvin himself didn't call himself—he he wasn't so arrogant as Andrew Tate. You know, who refers to his own philosophy as. Tate-ism. <laughs> what kind of an ass do you have to be to, to call, to give your own philosophy your own name as though you invented it? You know, 
Martin Luther didn't create Lutheranism any more than John Calvin created Calvinism. This is, this is the thought of people who followed them. But I will tell you this. I have read the Institutes of the Christian Religion. I am one of those rare people on the planet who read that 1,756-page, <laughs> two-volume work. I have read it, and Calvin, Calvin's mind was a citadel of order. He makes disagreement with him almost impossible because he was so superbly educated. And, you know, he's educated as a lawyer and as a classicist. He quotes regularly, you know, classical thought throughout those works. Um, do I believe in total depravity? Yeah. Yeah, of course I do. I, I, my own experience tells me that. All I have to do is look at my own heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all, excuse me, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We all kid ourselves about our depravity. If you think about it, it's kind of like what we do with our weight. <laughs> my, my wife, by the way, is quite fit, and she has always been fit. She's never been overweight in her life, but years ago, this funny story that we laugh about is I saw her weigh herself in the bathroom, and then, I, then I, I, I saw her going to the other bathroom. I said, what are you doing? She says, I like the scale in the other bathroom better. <laughs> she, was switch, she, was going to keep, she was going to keep trying scales until she got the response she, that she wanted. We all do this. How many times have you heard the phrase, you know, pictures add 10 pounds? <laughs> it's a way of telling ourselves, you know, I don't actually look like that. I look better than that. Sometimes I watch myself on this podcast. I go, oh, need to lose a little weight in my face, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Point is, we all kind of pat ourselves in the back and give ourselves a pass while judging others very, very harshly. I hope to speak truth on this podcast uh, because it's God's truth and because I'm not your judge. God's your judge. I'm not your judge. He's my judge. And I beg for his grace and mercy because I need it. But do I believe that, I, um, that there was any good in me to choose him? No. Romans 3, together they have turned aside. Together they've all become worthless. So I believe those words. Next. So a question from Michael. He says, should we offer... Is this my son, Michael? Is, is, <laughs> is he trolling me on this it's, YouTube Q&A? <laughs> I didn't say his last name because I'll probably say it wrong. Michael <laughs> Falsia, I think. Uh, he says... Should Christians offer morally scathing criticisms to our elected officials? In other words, should we call them what they are? I think he's trying to ask, you know, do you play the person or the ball? Yeah, well, I, th I think there's two ways of answering this. Some people have um, really, really sharply criticized me, and I mean gone after me personally with ad hominem attacks. One of them even going so far as to try to undermine my funding. And do you know why? Because I criticized Tim Keller. But what I did with Tim Keller was, Tim Keller was very, Tim Keller is deceased now. And um, do I believe that all of his teaching was, you know, was wrong, was false? No, of course not. I think Tim Keller, uh, Tim Keller preached a series on, uh, on the Gospel of John that I found very, very useful. But his his late-in-life preaching on social issues, and particularly his, his adoption, which he effectively did of social justice movement, was unconscionable, in my opinion. It showed extraordinary ignorance on his part as to what Marxism and social justice 
actually are. There's nothing Christian about them. And if this had been private sin, that is something between he and his wife or something like that, far be it from me to say anything. It's none of my business. But this was public teaching. Galatians chapter 2, the apostle Paul says, I confronted Peter to his face. Those are the words he uses for his false teaching. His false teaching by the example he was setting, which was undermining the gospel. If the apostle Peter can be questioned, then I believe Tim Keller can be questioned. <laughs> and I was questioning his public teaching because I believed, and I still believe that a lot of his writings as such are leading a generation of, of pastors and others straight off a theological cliff. So I called him out. Keller was aware of that. And this brings up an important point. I never saw any repentance from him. I mean, I was pointing out in an article you can find online called Keller, Piper, Piper and Trump. It was published in like October 2020, just before the 2020 election. I was showing how he was using scripture saying that the Bible said this when it quite clearly didn't say that. If Tim Keller had fired off an email to me who had said, you know what? This is a good point. I mean, you see in Acts, I think it's Acts 17, anyway, in the book of Acts, Apollos, who is a powerful apologist for the gospel, he's a fairly recent convert, he's actually saying some things that aren't quite true. And Aquila and Priscilla pull him aside. Do you recall this passage? And it says they pull him aside privately to say, hey, you're actually wrong about this. And you know what it did? It made Apollos that much more effectively, meaning he humbled himself to go, I was wrong. There have been times that people, and maybe even in a podcast like this, where people say, hey, you're actually wrong about that, to which I have to own it and say, thank you so much. My information was incorrect. You speak enough publicly, and, and I feel this for a guy like, like Tim Keller and others. You, you preach as many sermons as he did. You write as many articles. You, you are going to say things that are wrong from time to time. You just are. Just the sheer volume of what's going out there. But repentance is key here. So when we're talking about public officials or preachers or others who are saying things that are not true and doing things that are injurious. They're not private sins. They're things that are injurious to the body politic, to their congregations. And you see no repentance when they're called out. Then yes, I think you called them. I mean, what did John the Baptist do? Did, did John the Baptist withdraw from politics and say, well, I'm not going to say anything about what's going on here with Herod. He was daily denouncing Herod for his sin, his public sin that he was rubbing in the face of the people. Would John the Baptist continue to do that if the man had repented of his sin? Of course not. He'd have led him to the kingdom. So I think, I think that, that, that the question of repentance is, is very, very important when we're talking about these things. We show mercy to those individuals, always recognizing that we ourselves need grace. I don't think I'm better than anybody. And I don't just say that you know, just as a, some kind of virtue signaling thing. I say it because I mean it, because I'm aware of just how wicked my own heart is. And if you really allow yourself to some, some introspection, you'll begin to pick up on, and I sometimes pray for this, you know, 
give me insight into my own wicked thinking because every now and then you you feel an idea come up or a thought come up and you become aware of it it's sort of subconscious and you become aware of it and you go oh wow you know <laughs> gosh that was really really kind of an evil thing that i thought next question this is another question from Katarina, actually and it is what three living thinkers do you think everyone should follow and pay attention to <sighs> living thinkers gosh i'm a historian which means i focus on dead people I see dead people, living thinkers. Well, I just mentioned Lennox. Lennox is worth reading. Lennox has written, when I was at the World Economic Forum, I told John this, that is John Lennox. I was talking to one of the WEF, one of the World Economic Forum guys who was presenting on artificial intelligence, not a Christian. And I just said to him, hey, are you familiar with John Lennox's book, 2084, which is about artificial intelligence? And he had read it which I was thrilled to hear. John Lennox is a guy who's worth reading. He's, uh, he's definitely worth reading on scripture, um, on um, scientific issues, and a great many other things. So that's a guy that I would, would have you read. Um, living, living thinkers. I'm going to need more time to think on that, and I, I don't want to waste time on here. Katerina, I'm, I'm sorry that I'm, I'm failing you right here. I Again, I see dead people, so I have to, I have to spend a little bit more time uh, thinking on that issue. Keep going. Next question is: uh, Do you think that people should leave Democrat states and move to Republican-governed states? I don't think it's for me to decide where you live. Um, I think you need to do what's what's best, what you feel you're being led to do. What's best for you and for your family. Now, if I lived in um, inner city. You know, New York, particularly if I was raising a family, would I stay there? Probably not. But I might feel, I might feel that it's, uh, that I'm called to be there, that I'm called to be in that arena, the way that I'm called to be in this arena. I love what I do for a living, but I will tell you, it can be very hard. And there's always a temptation to just live a private life. And there's a part of me that, that wants to do that. But I'm called to this. And some of you may feel that about where you live, that you're called to be there. But I would warn you, I often hear Christians say stupid things like this. We want our children to be salt and light in the public schools. Junior isn't ready to be Billy Graham. Not ready for that. That's a pretty heavy load. Be salt and light out there, kids. Take on your third grade teacher who's pushing the LGBT alphabet mafia agenda. Don't do that. I also hear parents say stupid things like this. Well, you can't shelter your children. Well, just what the hell do you do? That's your job is to shelter your children. We were of the view that we hold our children's hands and guide them through the world, sheltering them from the evil, helping them to navigate it and understand it until such time as we let go. And we say, now you're ready. Now you're ready to stand on your own. They're not ready to do that right off of the bat. When my oldest son, Michael, headed off to Yale Law, we knew what he was in for. But we also knew that Michael was ready to stand on his own two feet against it. Whatever, whatever temptations he faced there, they were never going to seduce him intellectually. Wasn't going to happen. So uh, I think you have to do what you feel the Lord is calling you to do in that regard. Next question. How would you tell people to combat religious leaders that are misleading their flocks? Combat religious leaders. Levi. I wonder if he is of the tribe. 
up. Um, well, I'd love to give you a pat answer to that and say this is what you do. But the fact is every situation is a little different. Maybe you leave that church. Uh, maybe you're an elder in that church and thus you have some authority in that church. But I would say to the extent that you can, try to not to make it about your personality versus their personality. Let them argue with, tr with, with truth. I always try, you know, some of you are familiar with this book of mine, The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, now deceased, he was a well-known atheist, um, a journalist, a friend of mine. I took lengthy road trips with Christopher. We studied the Gospel of John together. And I, the way I did that was by getting him into Scripture. I didn't want to make him argue with me. I wanted him to wrestle with Scripture itself. And um, so be sure that you stand on solid ground. I mean, if you're saying that that, that you're getting false teaching from the pulpit, you better be sure of that because that's, that's, a, that's a pretty heavy accusation. So you better make sure that, that you know what you're talking about and then you, know, you go from there. Next question. Yeah, Larry, a lot of questions around end times, pre-trib, post-trib. <laughs> Are we living in the end times? <laughs> um, however you want to take it. Yeah, well, this answer is going to disappoint a lot of you. I am a... I'm a pan-millennial. I believe that it will all pan out um, in, the, uh, in the end. You know, um, to, to quote an old headmaster of mine, reading Revelation is like swimming in grits. Um, I find Revelation immensely difficult. If my father-in-law were sitting right here, who is a dispensationalist, I'm not a dispensationalist, but he is a dispensationalist. He would be giving me a hard look right now, um, and uh, he would be ready to answer this question, I mean, in detail, about everything regarding end times. I'm not ready to do that. I'm not there. That doesn't mean that at some point in my life I won't really, really, really be moved to study um, revelation in detail and, and have a more solid answer for you. What I believe is this, and I think it's the... It's one of the central messages of Revelation, why Revelation was written. John is there writing to a, a Christian population that is suffering horribly under Roman rule and is having doubts about Christ's return. And is all this in vain? Is it all for nothing? And I think that if you get nothing else out of the book of Revelation, get this, we win. We win. That is a central message there. Christ will return. He will judge. He will reward. We win. We are moving irresistibly from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Exactly what that's going to look like, I'm very reluctant to say because I have known so many well-intentioned pastors, preachers. I mean, Larry Burkett, he was sure that Y2K was all of that. And I remember at the time going, well, I don't know. I mean, he was ready. He, he, he interpreted, he read what, um, the, the turning of the calendar, Y2K into Revelation and wrote books on it and spoke with, in, in absolute terms as to what was going to happen. It didn't. You look like a false prophet when you do stuff like that. So I'm very, very tenuous in my opinions on the book of Revelation, but I am confident of this. My Lord will return and he will judge. When that happens, I don't know. Next question. 
So we have a lot of questions about Catholicism and what your opinion is of you know, Catholicism and the current Pope. Yeah, well, I, as I say, I just I spent three months earlier this year in Rome, and I was very grateful for that because it, it did so much to feed my mind and to feed a, um, a podcast like this. Um, if, if, you're, if you don't follow her, she's, she's worth following. Um, Brie Dale, she is on Twitter. She's somebody I follow on Twitter. She's reporting from Rome, and I had coffee with her um, dinner a couple times, and Brie, Brie is a, a, a fervent Catholic. She's a Bible-believing Christian. Do I think she's a real Christian? Absolutely. Do I think that there, I have many Catholic brothers in arms, brothers and sisters in arms, who, who are, I'm going to see in heaven 100%. Um, however, I have some serious reservations with this Pope, who I, uh, I think is, uh, you know, uh, very heavily influenced by liberation theology, which is to say Marxist theology in his native continent of South America. Um, I had enormous respect for John Paul II, who I think had a, had a massive influence along with Reagan in bringing down com communist Russia. A man of great courage. Do I believe that man will be in heaven? I do. Uh, there are some Catholic thinkers who have influenced my own thinking. Now, bear in mind, I'm somewhat, I'm somewhat Calvinist, as we've already said in here. But I'm not prepared to just, to just you know, say that all Catholics you know, aren't Christians or something like that any more than I'm prepared to say that all Protestants are Christians because I don't believe that. However, am I of the belief that you are, that you are saved by anything other than your faith in Jesus Christ? No. Do I accept dual source inspiration, uh, dual authority? that there's, there's the Bible and then there's the church. No, I don't. Sola Scriptura, straight down the line. But um, the Catholic Church, as Brie would tell you right now, she speaks of something called the Black Mass, which she educated me on when, um, when I was there that I knew nothing about. And that is to say she is of the belief and many, many um, Orthodox, which is to say serious Catholics, are of the belief that the Catholic Church has been penetrated by uh, a satanic element. Now, you can believe what you want regarding that, but you can go and, you know, hit Brie up on Twitter and ask her her opinion about that. But I don't have much respect for what I'm seeing in most of the Catholic Church these days. But the Catholics who really take themselves seriously, um, who take Scripture seriously, who take faith uh, seriously, those are people who are fighting the cultural war. Those are people who are against abortion. They're against the alphabet mafia. They're against socialism. They're against Marxism. It's because they know what it is. So will I align with those people? You betcha. I, I, I just tweeted a couple of days ago that my, my good friend Benjamin Weicker wrote a book on the Reformation. Ben is a Catholic. I am so honored. I was moved. He showed me that book, and it's dedicated to me, who he says my great evangelical friend. So Ben, knowing my own Calvinist leanings and knowing my own evangelical Protestant faith, and I love Ben Weicker. Ben Weicker is a guy, by the way, coming back to you, Katrina, that's a guy that I would say go read. Greatly undervalued under, uh, writer. His book, 10 Books That Screwed Up the World, is not only hilarious, it's highly informative. It's called 10 Books That Screwed Up the World and Five More That Didn't Help. <laughs> I think I required all of my children to read that book. Next. 
Question here from Josh Rogers. He says, in your book, The Faith of Christopher Hitchens, you explore the friendship between yourself and him. What lessons did you learn from your interactions with him and how did that shape your faith? You know, I had been prepared for my engagement with him because my father was a little like him. Now, my father was not an atheist. Uh, I, I think, in fact, if I'd have told my father I was an atheist, say, in high school, he'd probably hit me. <laughs> but my father was pretty hostile to the church. And he was not a church attender until the very end of his life when he knew that he was dying. Um, where many people were deeply offended by Christopher, and for good reason, because he could be a blasphemer. Um, I was less offended, and that was because, you know, as I've said at the beginning of this, this uh, Q&A, I grew up around rough men. That sometimes filters into my salty language, you know, on, on a podcast like this. But I grew up around rough men, and so there's hardly any joke that I haven't, dirty joke that I haven't heard or maybe even told myself. And um, I'm used to those kind of people and can enjoy their company. One of the things I learned through my relationship with Christopher was the importance of friendship. Um, now, the left has tried to smear me um, for that book very dishonestly, saying that I claimed a deathbed conversion. I absolutely did not, and they know that I didn't. David Frum at The Atlantic, I'll just say David is a POS. I won't go any further than that, but the man is a liar. He knew very well after interviewing me that I made no such claim, but he claimed that I did. And it was because he didn't like the fact that Christopher, he saw it as a betrayal, that Christopher could have a friend with someone like me who was an evangelical. Christopher valued friendship. And at the end of his life, he was not what he had been earlier in his life, which is to say an ideologue, somebody who placed ideas above people. He no longer did that. I also learned that I have to be willing to own my own errors in communicating my faith. Christopher and I, we, we, we sharpened each other in our arguments with each other. Occasionally, he, you know, in private discussion, he'd score a point and I'd have to say, that's a good point. I have to rethink that. I have to rethink that. Um, also, having compassion for people, I really felt great compassion for, for Christopher at the end of his life because I believe, and this was really the whole of my claim, I believe that Christopher, in fact, I know he was because our conversations indicated this and his own public writings indicated this, that Christopher was rethinking his atheism. Now, do I think he made a conversion to the Christian faith? I don't. Do I know that he didn't? No, I don't know. But he was rethinking his atheism. He was thinking actually very deeply on a late in life discovery that, he, that his mother was Jewish, a Jewish on his mother's side. That had a real effect on him. But Christopher had made so many public statements about his atheism that he had kind of, in cask of a Montalato fashion, Edgar Allan Poe, had bricked himself in to a prison that was almost impossible for him to escape because he had said so many things about the Christian faith the average person who is an atheist, let's say, but doesn't have a public profile, their conversion might make, might make a small swell in their own social circles, but it doesn't make headlines. If Christopher had made a public declaration for the Christian faith, he would have been savagely attacked by the left and by his own friends, maybe even by his own family. That's a hard place to be. 
Imagine how hard it is when you're trying to share the faith with somebody who is Muslim or Hindu, who may even come to the conclusion that what you're saying is true, but they begin counting the cost of their conversion. They begin to realize that it requires a whole new friend set. It requires, you know, maybe being disowned by their own families. I felt compassion for him as he was thinking those things through. And I also felt very grateful to the insights that he gave me and the encouragements he gave me as a writer, uh, which were very real. Do I claim to have been a part of any inner circle of his? No, I wasn't part of an inner circle. I didn't know him from youth. And there were a great many things I'm sure that were on his mind and heart that he never shared with me. But our friendship was real nonetheless. And I valued the fact that I could have a friendship with a man who didn't share my faith. And you need to be able to have friendships with people who don't just stay in the family life center, you know, running on the treadmill next to people who believe the same things you do. Go join the Y. Engage, get out into the culture. Engage people. Where I, would, where I just said to you, don't send your children into the world to be salt and light. They're not ready for that. I send you, as Jesus sent you, into the world to be salt and light. We're at time. A couple of final... I'm things. hungry, guys. Let's get out of here. <laughs> Really quick, one, uh, a lot of questions about a reading list. So maybe you could tell people where they could sign up for your email. Um, and maybe we could work on a reading list of... Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. Um, reading list, first of all, I, I uh, pay attention to what I have on this desk. As I, as I think of it, uh, I didn't initially begin with books on this, this desk with the purpose of you seeing them and in wanting to know what they are. But now I've read so many of the comments where it's become clear that a lot of you are paying very close attention to the books that I have here on this table. So um, I'll try to refresh the table every now and then. Typically the books that I have up here are books that I'm referencing. They're books that I'm using. Uh, they're books that I'm reading in the podcast. And I just want to have them um, ready for quick reference, but I'll try to refresh them. Uh, you can go to my website at Larry Alex Taunton. That's T-A-U-N-T-O-N, LarryAlexTaunton.com. And I think a little pop-up box comes up and says, you know, shows you to subscribe. I can't subscribe you. You have to subscribe yourself. So get on, get on there. We send out a newsletter uh, typically once a week. And um, just about everything that I do is staged there on that website. So a podcast, we send out there articles that I'm writing, interviews I'm doing. You will see them there. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. And um, in addition to, if I can just give you a general principle, it would be this. In addition to reading um, your Bibles, I would strongly encourage you to read, and this might be the third book, um, Katya, in terms of modern readers. It's just not a specific author. I would encourage you to read now, don't just listen to what other people have to say about what other people are saying. Read what other people are saying. Acquaint yourself. Occasionally choose a random book off the New York Times bestseller list. I do that every now and then just to see what, it, what is it that people find interesting about this book? What is resonating with them about this? I do the same with movies. You know, I remember Alistair Begg saying to me, um, hey, have you seen Avatar yet? No, I haven't seen it. Um, we should. You need to see this movie. Not because it's good, but because millions of people are resonating with a message in this movie. 
You need to understand what that is. That's terrific advice. I, now, some people use that as an excuse to be libertines and just, you know, I go to the strip club in order to understand, you know, what people are, what is it they find attractive about strip clubs? What is it? Why do they come here to the strip club? Ah, it's because of the naked ladies. Um, occasionally, it is useful for you to engage in those things so that you have an understanding of what people are thinking. To understand, this is especially true with Gen Zers and millennials. What are they watching? How are they talking? How do they listen? I, uh, I, I like to listen to their music. I like to watch the things that they're watching. Uh, occasionally read the things that they're reading so that I can better understand uh, um, how, what they're feeling and what they're thinking, not just come off on a podcast like this is just some, some old curmudgeon. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. I wish I could actually see you. It'd be wonderful if I could, but unfortunately I can't. Again, I'll try to engage you in the comments on the, uh, on, on the YouTube channel. You can go there. Follow me on Twitter, at Larry Taunton on Twitter. I've got a, got a blue check, so you can, you can find me on there. There may be some impersonators. I don't know. But um, you can find me there. And then, of course, you can subscribe to the website at LarryAlexTaunton.com and make sure you go out and buy all of my books. I've written three. They're available on Amazon. Please buy them in bulk. Thank you so much.